0: Welcome to Middle East PolicyCast, episode 67 for January 31, 2020. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Earlier this week, the Trump administration unveiled its plan for a final settlement of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a document titled Peace to Prosperity, a Vision to Improve the Lives of the Palestinian and Israeli People. The next day, a panel of Washington Institute scholars, including former peace negotiators for the Palestinian Authority and the U.S. State Department, and a veteran congressional foreign policy aide gave a special briefing on the administration's peace plan and its ramifications for the Middle East and for domestic politics in Israel, the United States, and the Palestinians.
1: This is a radical departure from traditional American diplomacy, um, a radical departure from anything any American president has ever uh, done before, uh, any administration has ever done before.
2: There's no doubt that this is a shift in Israel's direction. It looks like this inverts the kind of classic Israeli critique of American peacemaking that used to go like this. The Arabs get tangibles. Israelis get the promise of peace. Here it's Israel gets the tangibles, it looks like up front, and the Palestinians get the promise that you got four years to get your act together to consider this. The status quo today regulates uh, in terms of how who accesses
3: Muslim Jew, uh, holy sites and who accesses Jewish holy sites. Very clearly prohibits uh, Jews from praying on the Haram al-Sharif Temple Mount. And by the way, a provision that was held by Israel since 1967 when Israel took control of that. Very deep religious uh, uh, connotations. And by the way, every time there is a change or a challenge to the status quo, that's what we see violence.
4: In general, Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship is a unifier for the GOP and a caucus divider, an area of tension for Democrats, especially on the Hill.
0: Those were the voices of Robert Satloff, David Mikovsky, Khaita Lomari, and Dana Struhl, speaking at a January 29 special press briefing. We'll hear their full remarks after this.
4: This is Anna Borshevskaya, the Ira Weiner Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute.
0: First, we'll hear from Robert Satloff, the Washington Institute's Executive Director, and Howard P. Berkowitz Chair in U.S. Middle East Policy.
1: Good morning, I'm Rob Satloff. Welcome to the Washington Institute. I'm delighted to be welcomed by uh, my colleagues today. On my right is David McCoskey. Uh, David is uh, the director of our program on Arab-Israel relations, former uh, State Department official uh, in the carried uh, uh, Peace Team, a um, uh, 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 widely published author on uh, Arab-Israel affairs, Israeli politics, and uh, a, a deep dive into all aspects of the uh, Israeli Palestinian uh, peace process. Um, sitting to his right is Gayth El Omri. is a senior fellow here at the Institute um, uh, with uh, his own experience as a peace negotiator, um, advising the PLO negotiation, PLO negotiation in the early phases of, um, in an earlier phase of the Oslo process. Um, uh delighted to have him with us with his personal expertise and knowledge of uh, Arab, uh, especially Palestinian and Jordanian politics. Sitting to my left, Dennis Trull, um, uh, Dana joined the Institute last year as a senior fellow at the Institute after um, uh, five years uh, on uh, uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as the uh, uh, senior professional staff member for the Middle East. Um, uh, with also previous experience in the, in the Pentagon. Um, uh, on Middle East issues. Um, I'm delighted to have uh, Dennis' knowledge of both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue um, here with us today. So we're going to make very, some very brief remarks about um, uh, what happened yesterday and the implications thereof. Very briefly, because this is a very substantial document. If you haven't seen it, it is uh, 180 some odd pages. The bulk of this, I should say, is um, uh, a reprint of the bahrain conference details from last year the bahrain economic um, uh, uh, companion piece to the political initiative which was issued yesterday um, uh, but it is uh, it is still stunningly detailed in uh um, in its prescriptions its uh, breadth its depth and its scope um, indeed that's my first point um, this is a radical departure from traditional american diplomacy Um, A RADICAL DEPARTURE FROM ANYTHING ANY AMERICAN PRESIDENT HAS EVER uh, DONE BEFORE, uh, ANY ADMINISTRATION HAS EVER DONE BEFORE, um, RADICAL IN THAT IT OFFERS um, A SPECIFIC AMERICAN um, VIEW ON THE MOST MINUTE DETAILS OF THE OUTCOME OF HOW THE the UNITED STATES VIEWS AN APPROPRIATE, LEGITIMATE OUTCOME of, uh, um, uh, OF AN israeli palestinian PEACE AGREEMENT. Um, uh, uh, Not just the contours, not just principles, not just parameters, but the most specific um, details. There are maps in here, Um, uh, uh, there are um, uh, ideas governing uh, movement of people, movement of goods, um, uh, 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 every conceivable issue that has historically been on the agenda of Arab-Israeli peacemaking is addressed in in this piece. Um, uh, That is something no American president has done before because um, ever since um, Ronald Reagan, the principal governing American peacemaking, has been to do our best to provide um, a safe and enticing forum for Israelis and Palestinians to negotiate themselves, uh, to limit the risks, um, to provide incentives, but not actually to do the hard work of defining an appropriate and legitimate solution. This takes that um, traditional format um, uh, throws it out the, the window and offers a very detailed solution. Uh, my second point is uh, uh, I think that there are some very useful correctives in this, um, useful uh, correctives in a, in a broad in a broad sense, um, uh, correctives to the traditional or conventional way of Arab-Israeli peacemaking. Uh, 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 many people, um, uh, uh, including uh, governments, including people in in our in our government, have have long argued that um, uh, there could be a massive transfer of populations, uh, movements of hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers as part of um, uh, a, a solution. Um, um, or um, uh, 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 some have argued that. Uh, um, uh, uh, uh there could be um, um uh, th- th- that the jordan river was not legitimately israel's security border um, when uh, <coughs> i think this this plan quite correctly uh, makes the case um, that uh, the jordan valley, The Jordan River is a legitimate security border for Israel, and that one cannot conceive of a serious peace plan that envisions the movement of hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers, Um, uh, uh, nor can one envision a plan that, that doesn't also have some serious substantial links between the future Palestinian state and Jordan and Egypt, that these things It can't can't survive solely on its own. Um, So in in this sense, I think there's a useful corrective that's at the heart of this plan. Um, uh, However, and it's no small however, um, uh, this plan takes these useful correctives, um, uh, injects them with steroids, um, and produces um, uh, uh, and stretches them beyond all recognition. And so uh, it's not just that the Jordan Valley is Israel's security border it's that 100 of the jordan valley becomes sovereign israeli territory it's not just that uh, you can't move hundreds of thousands of settlers um, because that's not realistic it's you can't move one settler um, uh, uh, yeah, that in fact all existing israeli settlements um, by this plan become sovereign israeli territory um, and that is uh, uh my, my phrase is there was no Solomonic decisions here about what is legitimate and what is illegitimate. This is um, uh, a, uh, 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 on all the key issues, it appears as though um, the Trump plan um, uh, represents what is a traditional um, uh, Likud party approach to uh, final status issues. Uh, it is dramatically more, um, a lot's dramatically more to Israel than any previous, even. Uh, American conception. I mean the whole debate David can speak much greater detail about this, but the whole greater debate in years past 4% 6% 8% 10% of uh, You know what the defense that sort of thing this plan takes those ideas and Throws them away and allots to Israel 30% of the West Bank I think 40 um, uh, almost 40 percent um, uh, um YOU KNOW, uh, MULTIPLES OF WHAT PREVIOUS DISCUSSIONS WERE. Um, uh, 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 AGAIN, IN THIS PLAN, THE PALESTINIANS ONCE AGAIN earn THEIR WAY TO STATEHOOD. THE PLAN DRAWS uh, CONSIDERABLY ON THE LANGUAGE FROM THE GEORGE W. BUSH ROSE GARDEN SPEECH OF 2002. Um, uh, DEMOCRACY, um, uh, um, ANTI-CORRUPTION, INTERNAL REFORM, um, um, uh, BUT IT ADDS MANY MORE CONDITIONS THAN GEORGE BUSH HAD Um, 18 years ago, uh, and it makes Israel the judge over these conditions. And then it adds a kicker, which is that um, Israel has no responsibilities under this plan unless and until uh, the Palestinian Authority has responsibility for Gaza, um, or until Hamas changes its stripes on Israel. Um, uh, uh, I think that's uh, pretty much of a non-starter. This is a four-year plan. Um, not surprisingly Um, it is envisioned i think on a palestinian rejection now Um, if trump wins i think the premise of the assumption of this plan is that palestinians will have to recalibrate their views and and uh, adjust to a new reality Um, if trump loses in november my sense is that not much of this plan will survive Um, except this is my final point except and there's one big exception AND THAT HAS TO DO WITH WHAT MIGHT HAPPEN BETWEEN NOW AND THEN. AND THAT'S THE QUESTION OF ANNEXATION. AND WE SAW THIS um, uh, BEGIN TO PLAY OUT YESTERDAY. Um, IT'S CONTINUING TO PLAY OUT TODAY. Um, uh, WHERE WE SAW YESTERDAY THE PRESIDENT QUITE CLEARLY ENDORSE THE IDEA THAT ISRAEL HAS THE RIGHT TO um, EXTEND ISRAELI LAW OVER THOSE PORTIONS OF THE TERRITORY THAT THE PLAN ALLOTS TO ISRAEL, THAT ISRAEL HAS THE RIGHT TO DO THAT IMMEDIATELY um netanyahu announced that he was going to do that um his spokesman confirmed this but then evidently today um uh, after uh, i saw jared kushner do an interview with christian amanpour and suggest it's unlikely to happen um there was a bit of a pullback um, what is unknown is um whether it's shall i say a strategic pullback or a tactical pullback um, is it a pullback just until after the arab league meets on saturday um, is it a pullback until after the election? Um, is it a pullback? Um, uh, you know in principle. Um, my hunch is that it's a pullback after Saturday. Um, um, that they would prefer to have a firm and clear Palestinian no um, as the premise for an Israeli annexation. Otherwise, the president looks a bit as though he acted in bad faith when he extended his hand to the Palestinians um, so generously in his in his remarks yesterday. Um, but we will see, um, I DO THINK IT'S IMPORTANT TO UNDERSCORE HERE that, THAT that TWO THINGS HAPPENED YESTERDAY, THE ISSUING OF THIS PLAN AND THEN THE COMMITMENT ON ANNEXATION, AND THEY ARE NOT THE SAME THING. THIS PLAN COULD RISE OR FALL, COULD SINK OR SWIM, COULD DISAPPEAR IN THE ETHER, um, uh, it MAY HAVE NO LONG-TERM IMPLICATIONS. ANNEXATION, IF IT HAPPENS, AND CERTAINLY THE AMERICAN COMMITMENT TO IT AND THE ISRAELI COMMITMENT TO IT, BUT ANNEXATION, IF IT HAPPENS, THAT HAS REAL PRACTICAL IMPLICATIONS, ON THE ground with Palestinians, security cooperation, relationship with Arabs, um, and domestic implications here in the United States that my colleagues will all talk about. So I'll leave it at that.
0: That was Robert Zatloff. Next, we'll hear from David Mnikowski, the Institute's Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations. David also maintains an online interactive map of Palestinian communities and Israeli settlements in the West Bank and hosts the podcast, Decision Points.
2: Rob, I think made some very useful points, so I, I don't have to go over them. Uh, uh, I see it very similarly. Uh, the annexation piece I felt got short shrift in the media yesterday, because everyone focused on the plan itself. Uh, I do think you know there'll be some enterprising journalists out there in the next few days that will try to drill down on what happened, because I think the background coming out of the White House until 24 hours ago, before the plan was released, I should say, was don't do annexation now. And uh, I saw that Jerusalem posted a piece today saying that BB came saying he needed annexation now if he was going to agree to some freeze. Um, and I do wonder on the annexation piece, um, how that's going to impact the Arab side. WRAITH, uh, and my colleague I'm sure,
0: I HAVE SOME INSIGHTS ON THIS.
2: I, I THINK WHAT HAPPENED YESTERDAY ON THE ARAB peace, FROM WHAT I SEE IS A HISTORIC MOMENT IN THE HISTORY OF THIS CONFLICT, this is THE FIRST TIME THAT I'VE SEEN THE ARAB STATES NOT REFLEXIVELY LINE UP WITH THE PALESTINIAN POSITION. I'VE NEVER SEEN THIS BEFORE. MAYBE THERE'LL BE SOME TACTICAL POINTS THAT SOMEONE WILL POINT TO, BUT NOTHING LIKE THIS. AND NOT JUST ONE COUNTRY. And IT WAS BREATHTAKING. Uh, AND IN THAT SENSE, THIS WAS THE HOPE OF THE ADMINISTRATION, a KIND OF A QUALIFIED, SUPPORT, NOT A FULL-THROATED EMBRACE, OF COURSE, BUT THAT WAS ALL THEY WANTED, A QUALIFIED SUPPORT. BUT I worry THAT THIS IS uh, NOW IN JEOPARDY, THAT BY FRONT LOADING THE ANNEXATION, YOU DESTROY THE PLAN ON THE DAY IT'S RELEASED, AND YOU LEND CREDIBILITY TO THOSE CRITICS WHO WANT TO INSIST THAT THIS IS AN ANNEXATION PLAN MORE THAN IT IS A PEACE PLAN. SO I THINK THE MEDIA IS GOING TO CATCH ON TO THIS, AND IN THE NEXT 24 TO 48 HOURS, I THINK THE MEDIA NARRATIVE IS GOING TO BE MORE FOCUSED ON THE SHORT-TERM ANNEXATION QUESTION. I'M NOT SURE IF IT WAS uh, OUT OF RESPECT TO, uh, the, to KUSHNER on, on CHRISTIANA AND ROPS THAT HE DIDN'T KNOW. I DON'T KNOW. I MEAN, THERE ARE SOME VERY TECHNICAL POINTS. WHERE DOES THE ATTORNEY GENERAL uh, IN ISRAEL STAND ON THIS? Uh, IS THIS SOMETHING THAT A CARETAKER GOVERNMENT CAN DO? Even things like, what is exactly being annexed? To know what's annexed, you have to delineate uh, you know 113 places, uh, not including the 112, uh, the, not including the 15 enclaves in the, in the Palestinian state. Can you do that in, in just a couple of days? I don't think so. Uh, so there are technical issues beyond the political. If it's just political, maybe just getting through the Saturday thing It's one thing but i think the annexation piece stands on its own and i i stress this point heavily because i think it's the most tangible element of what happened yesterday it's distinct from the plan it's not in the plan itself the front loading but it is the most urgent tangible dimension of the school so i would look to that um you know rob pointed out the um you know the 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 differences when people used to talk about the jordan valley uh those who you know it was one thing for the security people to talk about political control but the plan as rob noted talks about full sovereignty everywhere i see this plan as basically and you know it was very it was fascinating i don't think anyone in the media picked up on it but prime you know trump said yesterday the map is the prime minister's map it is not an american map but he adopted the prime minister's map and um, you know, one could argue, and I don't like to be snarky at these things about could the U.S. you know does IT have the wherewithal to develop such a, a fine map uh, in certain constellations? I don't want to I don't want to go there, but I do think that that he said this is the prime minister's map, and he adopted that. Um, I see the map. If you just add up the numbers, it's 30 percent of the West Bank is the Jordan Valley. Eight percent is the areas that uh, you've heard Dennis, me, Wraith, Rob talk about the block settlements inside the map, inside the fence, the barrier, the wall, whatever you want to call it. That's another eight. According to the great work done by the people, by Lauren and, 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 and Basha, who helped me out, and we have this whole aerial photography and our website, Settlements and Solutions, this thing adds another 62 settlements outside the barrier. What we would call non-block settlements. That doesn't even include the 15 and the enclaves. So 62 and 15 is 77 settlements outside the barrier, non-block plus the 50, you know, 51 block. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, so that that that's at least that's more. Now there are some swap areas. But what I noticed in the map, also I don't want to be Talmudic about this, is there's no delineation of the West Bank itself, which makes me think that this area here is actually Israel. This is the first time on page 13, I believe, I have not seen this in an official map, that the U.S. raises the possibility of annexing what's called the triangle. It Set it's up to the parties. There's hundreds of thousands of Arabs, Israeli citizens there, hundreds of thousands. So, you know, that's something to look at. As well, so I think this. If this is six, even with the swap areas, I don't think we're talking about more than. I think we're talking about a forty percent. What would be Israel? Now the Likud position is this a Likud position? The, Netanyahu said at the Bar Ilan speeches for two states, but the Likud actually never adopted it, and the cabinet never adopted it. So it's hard to talk about a Likud position. But you know um, Bennett, who was the leader on the on the right. Of uh, the the defense minister of the amina party he's talked about what exists today a plus b equals 40. this goes up to 60. the previous u.s plans clinton at 97 percent if you had the swabs carry and this up to 100 percent. so this is a, is a departure from that as, as rob pointed out correctly uh i would just say here if, you, if we could go through by the way which settlements there are there, you know this i mentioned these 62 settlements that's um, you know half of them. Uh, it depends. The prime minister counts 30 of them of being in the in the Jordan Valley. And I think our count is 23. I don't want to get too nitpicky here. I'll just say one last point. Just in terms of other new features here, it, it, it moves the East Jerusalem line that the Clinton plan talked about Jewish neighborhoods and for Israel, Arab neighborhoods for the Palestinians. This says the Arab neighborhoods will be Israel up to the, the in, Israel, in Jerusalem it's a, actually is a wall. It's uh, they lopped off northern part of uh, Jerusalem uh, after the fence, uh, the barrier, whatever you want to call it, was built. So that no man's zone would be the Palestinian capital. So that's in the northern uh, part. It might be in the southern uh, part, too. Uh, there's no refugees in there at all. Like I said, Jordan Valley is about sovereignty, not security presence. So there's no doubt that this is a shift in Israel's direction. People can argue, is this something redeemable? Uh, Rob pointed out all the conditionality. It looks like you know this inverts the kind of classic Israeli critique of American peacemaking. They used to go like this. The Arabs get tangibles. The Israelis get the promise of peace. Here, it's, Israel gets the tangibles, it looks like up front, and the Palestinians get the promise that you got four years to get your act together to consider this. And so there are a lot of new variables here, and uh, there are a lot of elements to pay attention to. So why don't I just stop here and turn it over to
0: my colleague. That was David Mikofsky. Next, we'll hear from Reith al senior fellow at the Washington Institute and a former advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during the 1999-2001 through 2001 permanent status talks.
3: What I'm going to do, I'm going to start with uh, just some general remarks, uh, go a bit into what how the Palestinians see this plan from a substantive point of view, and conclude with a few words on what to watch out for in terms of Palestinian politics, how this has impacted Palestinian politics. Sorry, I mean, just some random open remarks. Uh, it's interesting so far in the Arab media, there are two categories. You have those which are more kind of the traditional US allies where it's almost uh, non-existent. You have to really scroll down in the web pages to actually see any coverage of Arabia, Sky News, Arabia, et Al Jazeera, uh, Turkish Arabic uh, language, uh, uh, that's up there. Look at how the Saudis and Emiratis are selling out the Palestinians. So it is playing into this kind of uh, internal Arab uh, dynamics. Uh, the Arab reaction so far is very muted, and everyone seems to be punting towards uh, Saturday, the Arab uh, League uh, uh, The Saudis are interesting, uh, a very uh, muted uh, state of the foreign ministry, but then a phone call very publicly uh, publicized from King Salman to uh, President Abbas saying that he's going to support the Palestinians. How this plays out, we'll see uh, again on Saturday in terms of uh, decisions. You're totally right, uh, Rob, about the correctives. There were very important correctives here, things that we used to talk about privately in negotiating uh, rooms, which are now being put out in the public. This is good. However, the overall packaging is so negative that I'm afraid that these correctives will get uh, drowned you know, ne- in the negative uh, uh, noise that will uh, I think for the Palestinians, and we're already seeing this, uh, what the overall framing that they would present is, what we're seeing here is simply an expanded area. What we have today, but on a larger territory, but no more uh, jurisdiction, and therefore it's not a state. It's some sort of uh, self, uh, self. Uh. And they will point out to the following uh, points on, on borders. They will look at the map, uh, sharp departure of 1967 borders, the enclaves that uh, were mentioned, and ultimately replacing contiguity, physical contiguity, with transportation contiguity footnote under Israeli security control. So uh, in some ways what we see uh, today, and of course the big deal is no border with Jordan. Um, Again there's a difference between security uh, presence and control in the Jordan, uh, along the Jordan River, and no uh, border with Jordan, and even the border crossings that were envisioned in this will continue to be effectively under Israeli control. Israel will have the right to uh, block uh, goods, and the language is not clear, but it seems to me that also the passage of uh, individuals. Again, not different from what we have today. The idea of land swaps uh, of populated areas in Israel, population transfers, uh, where, while not a Palestinian uh, issue, it's an Israeli issue, but one that will get a lot of play in Palestinian and Palestinian Arab-Israeli uh, media. In Jerusalem, two key points. One is the one that David uh, mentioned. The borders of Al-Quds, the Palestinian capital, is uh, so far east beyond the uh, barrier. Um, which, for no Palestinian, is considered Jerusalem. You know, it's the same as saying, I don't know, uh, Frederick is D.C. Uh, it's, uh, it's seen as an extension of Ramallah versus an extension of uh, Jerusalem. This is not the Jerusalem that we talk about. This is less than an issue for the Arabs, to be honest, because for the Arabs, Jerusalem is something else. But that's the second point that the Palestinians will focus on, is the holy sites of Jerusalem. Now, there is a bit of a, a, a inconsistency. In the map, it talks about maintaining the status quo, status quo being a technical term that denotes what the Ottomans uh, uh, put in place in terms of religious uh, relations. You go further, and it talks about freedom of worship on the Temple Mount, Haram sharif uh, which is the very crux of the status quo as most Arab countries... Uh, so this is the point that the Palestinians will not only use in domestic messaging, but also in messaging to the Arabs, particularly Jordanians and Saudis who have or equities in
1: this issue. Can I, can I just explain that sure. because freedom of worship, most people will think, oh, that makes, that sounds reasonable, yeah. but that's not the status quo. Oh, right. No, 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 the status quo today regulates
3: uh, in terms of uh, how who accesses Muslim Jew, uh, holy sites and who accesses uh, Jewish holy sites, very clearly prohibits uh, Jews from praying on the Haram sharif Temple Mount, and by the way, a provision that was held by Israel since 1967 when Israel took control of that uh very deep religious uh, uh, connotations and by the way every time that there is a change or a challenge to the status quo that's when we see violence i think it was 2017 when there was uh, a change even i think that was erecting metal detectors very technical issue we had days of uh, uh, violence and uh, withdrawal of ambassadors ambass- for Israel. industry and uh, so it's this is a quite a big deal uh, Security, as it sees it, is highly intrusive. Demilitarization was never really a problem. I mean, in all the previous negotiations, we always agreed there's going to be a demilitarized Palestinian state. The difference was what does that mean and how many, you know, know, what caliber guns do you have and all that kind of thing. Today we see something different, which is full IDF freedom of action in a future Palestinian state. Uh, again, similar to what we have today. And the benchmarks, I think, as uh, Rob said, uh, determined by Israel. Refugees, again, the problem is not that there's no, going to be no right of return. This is a point that, you know, publicly difficult to admit, but in negotiations the Palestinians have conceived since Camp David. Uh, the problem is that you have Israel actually having uh, uh, the right to determine who can go back to the Palestinian state. There is something here that said there's an Israeli vetting. Again, that's something that will be very hard to sell for any Palestinian uh, leader. Um, and then, of course, the conditions for negotiation, or the preconditions, actually, for negotiations, ironically, when well, preconditions used to be a bad word, now we have plenty of that in this, uh, the Palestinians have to do X, Y, Z to even engage in negotiations, but then the conditions, the kicker that you mentioned for implementing it is arm Hamas, uh, good luck with that one. One point you kind of just flagged, which is not a technical policy point, but I think it's very important, is the narrative point. And again, it's interesting, at the beginning of the uh, plan, there was something that says uh, reciting past narratives is unproductive, yet it, could, it proceeds to recite past narratives, ones which are extremely uh, insensitive, let's say, to the Palestinian uh, narrative. Um, my own view, what is the point of even talking about narratives in a, in a in like this, but we're going to do it. You don't do it by defending one side's narrative. This is important, not technically, but in terms of setting the deal. And it becomes very difficult for any Palestinian who wants to engage, or any Arab, to do that, because they say, okay, so you're adopting that particular narrative. So the impact is more political than it is uh, uh, technical. And there are many examples uh, of this. Now, this will all have, and I will conclude with this, impact on uh, Palestinian politics. Negative, in terms of prohibiting certain things, and proactive in terms of encouraging certain things. The most negative one, and hear, I go to one thing that you said, Paul. The idea of conditions is not new. Bush, George W. Bush, actually did uh, put conditions. But, and conditions, as you said, uh, difficult ones. Gover- uh, good governance, anti-corruption, uh, leadership that is not dated by terror, you know, I'm quoting here. Um, but he dangled quite an, uh, a compelling um, gift at the end of the uh, uh, of this process, which is Palestinian state. He was, I believe, the first American president to recognize or accept a state uh, solution. That allowed, that created space for Palestinian reformists uh, at that time, Abbas, of course, we can say that about him now, but at that time he was leading the charge, people like Fayyad and people of that sort, to basically go to Arafat and in public discourse and say, look, reform good governance, fighting terror, would get us stated. It created the space. This will do the exact opposite. Right now, any attempt to talk about some of these, I think, necessary, worthy preconditions uh, would be would be simply uh, discredited. Um, the proactive side relates to Hamas Fatah. Now, we started seeing already, uh, Abbas reaching out to Hamas. There was a meeting yesterday in Ramallah where Hamas participated. I just saw there's going to be a meeting next week in Gaza in which Fatah will participate. Abbas now is saying that he might go to Gaza. Um, (laughs) What's interesting here is, until now, Abbas has been uh, uh, insisting that any reconciliation will have to uh, be preceded by Hamas. uh, Disarming, disarming then, having certain security provisions when it comes to its use of arms. He can no longer do that. Right now, this will be uh, political suicide in the environment. It'll easily be seen as you're implementing... The deal of the century, and the deal of the century in uh, Palestinian parlance is a four-letter word. Uh, So uh, this actually has uh, narrowed the maneuver, uh, space of maneuver uh, for uh, the Palestinian authority. I suspect we will see a new bid for reconciliation uh, done, probably mainly on uh, Hamas's uh, uh, terms. Now I wouldn't hold my breath because Abbas, who doesn't want reconciliation, would find other ways of. of, of, uh, probably by passing that, but his margin of maneuver would be uh, narrower. And I think I will conclude with this. I'm happy to talk about the Arab reaction, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, let's wait for Saturday because this is where the uh, game
1: is really going to be played.
0: That was Ray al Next, we'll hear from Danis Struhl, the Shirley and Michael Kasson Fellow in the Washington Institute's Beth and David gaduld Program on Arab Politics. Danis served for five years as a senior professional staff member to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee.
4: I'm just going to share a few remarks about the politics of this moment. So in general, Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship is a unifier for the GOP and a caucus divider, an area of tension for Democrats, especially on the Hill. Um, You've seen this play out a little bit in the Democratic primary debates where a lot of Democratic candidates are now talking about or were previously talking about um, conditioning of security assistance to Israel, things that just weren't discussed even during the Obama administration who signed the landmark $3.8 billion a year in security aid to Israel. Now you actually have um, Democratic candidates talking about conditioning that assistance QUESTIONING U.S. SUPPORT TO ISRAEL BASED ON ACTIONS THAT ISRAEL MAY TAKE. SO WHAT'S INTERESTING TO ME TODAY IS TO LOOK AT WHO IS SAYING WHAT STATEMENTS. Um, LEADERS OF THE PARTY BOTH IN THE SENATE AND THE HOUSE FOCUSED VERY MUCH ON TRYING TO KEEP THE CAUCUS TOGETHER. IT IS INTERESTING TO ME THAT SEVERAL OF THE LEADERS IN THE SENATE Um, released statements ahead of the Trump announcement yesterday. So um, Elliot Engel, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and Bob Menendez, the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, together trying to hold their caucus together by by jointly issuing a statement before, on on Monday, where they talked about the general parameters as have always been accepted and David laid out of what a two-state OUTCOME WOULD LOOK LIKE, AND THEY SPECIFICALLY WARNED AGAINST UNILATERAL ACTION, um, WHICH WITHOUT BEING EXPLICIT IN THEIR STATEMENT, WHAT THEY'RE TALKING ABOUT IS annexation. ALSO INTERESTING IS STATEMENTS AFTER THE FACT. SO THE um, SENATE DEMOCRATIC LEADERSHIP PUT OUT A LETTER um, BASICALLY PANNING THE ENTIRE THING, um, A LOT OF THE CRITICISMS THAT HAVE BEEN LAID OUT HERE. And the other sort of interesting um, insight that I have is I was going and checking a bunch of the members' um, websites, so who put out statements. What's really remarkable is how many members didn't put out statements. So if you go to key foreign policy leaders, Senate Democratic, um, Senate, Democrat, Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee Democratic side, House Foreign Affairs, Hoyer, Pelosi, they just don't have statements on their websites. It would have been a reporter catching him, catching them in the hallway, and reported here or there. There's not even Twitter statements, um, which is also interesting. And I, based on what happens in terms of Israel's next moves, I think. Um, will be a determiner of what happens next in, in Democratic uh, Party politics on the Hill. Interestingly, all the Democratic primary candidates, Biden, Buttigieg, Warren Sanders, rejected this. This is not diplomacy, sets the terms for unilateral annexation. So again, you have what's hap- playing out in, in the primary um, race, and then you have what's happening on the Hill, where at leaders, I think, as much <clears throat> as possible who... ARE TRADITIONALLY TRYING TO HOLD THE CENTER, TRYING TO HOLD THE CENTER, AND THEN YOU HAVE VERY PROGRESSIVE MEMBERS OF THE CAUCUS ALREADY COMING OUT AND and CRITICIZING. Um, IT IS NOTEWORTHY THAT I THINK THAT THE PRESIDENT SAID TWO-STATE SOLUTION, WHICH IS SOMETHING THAT MOST OF THE uh, DEMOCRATS WHO SAID ANYTHING ALSO SAID. I THINK you YOU SEE THAT SOME LEADERS ARE ACKNOWLEDGING THAT THERE ARE PARTS OF THIS PLAN THAT ARE WORTHY OF CONSIDERATION but how it plays is whether or not it's just another statement that we talk about in a couple years or what happens over the next couple days and and coming months. So one, uh, if there are moves by Israel to unilaterally annex, uh, I think that will be incredibly difficult to maintain bipartisan consensus and consensus within the Democratic Party on maintaining the same kind of U.S.-Israel relationship that has always been seen as special and different from bilateral relationships with other countries. It is interesting, I, I think there's a lot, I will just say, you know, right now there's been some bipartisan unity in questioning the nature of U.S. relationships with Gulf countries. Um, a lot of times though, you've had democratic leaders out in front questioning the U.S.-Saudi relationship, the U.S.-UAE relationship, etc. cetera. Those governments have not warmly endorsed this plan. They are not throwing it out. Um, but they keep referring to international law, consistent with direct negotiations, um, something that should be considered. It's not a warm embrace. Uh, so it's interesting to see, actually, members of the Democratic Party align in some ways with not outright rejecting the plan, um, but but warning about certain, certain issues. Um, and then, obviously, we should talk about THE POLITICS OF THIS. SO THE B.B. TRUMP RELATIONSHIP, HOW um, PRIME MINISTER NETANYAHU SPOKE ABOUT THE TRUMP ADMINISTRATION AS the best, THE BEST ADMINISTRATION EVER FOR ISRAEL AND ISRAELI INTERESTS IS CERTAINLY SOMETHING THAT IS GOING TO SMART FOR MANY MEMBERS um, OF THE DEMOCRATIC PARTY WHO HAVE FOUGHT AND WORKED FOR YEARS TO MAINTAIN BIPARTISAN CONSENSUS AND VOTED FOR piece, PIECES OF LEGISLATION, RESOLUTIONS. Weapon sales every single year that at times have been contentious to hold that center.
2: You said not even close. That was the direct quote from the Prime Minister. Yeah, thank you.
4: (laughs) So, I mean, again, at this point, I think it's it's quite obvious how Netanyahu has decided to approach Trump in this relationship, which again is going to be very difficult um, for Democrats, and some of them will try to. Set it aside, but how this plays out, I think, could make it increasingly difficult for members of the Democratic Party who want to maintain the center and want to maintain bipartisan consensus to continue defending um, this despite leadership at the top of the government. Um, And then, obviously, timing. So we know what's going on with Netanyahu uh, domestically in Israel, same thing for Trump. And it is just, uh, I think. Stunning to me that in any other moment in time, this would be front page news. This would be what all members of Congress were getting asked about every day in the hallway. They would be compelled to tweet about it, speak about it, write letters about it, hold hearings about it, because it is such a departure from previous um, approaches to this to, to this process. And it, it's a blip um, as far as I see it on the headlines.
0: This has been Middle East Cast from the Washington Institute production assistance this week from Corey Francis. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at washingtoninstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East Policycast.